Hi, and welcome to a podcast from Hope Springs Church Coventry. For more, please find us on Facebook at Hope Springs Church or on Twitter, we're at Hope Springs Cobb. Thank you and enjoy. Right, I'm going to make a start then, um, else we won't finish until dinner time. Heavenly Father, thank you that um, you remember us. Uh, that, that on the cross as Jesus died and, and, and the, the criminal next to him asked him to remember him he said yes today and you will be with me in paradise thank you that the, the remembering that really matters is that our lives our names are written in the Lamb's book of life um, thank you that when it comes to remembrance that you remember us that you are a God who remembers and so Father please help us to be a community of remembrance uh, that we would remember the great narrative, the great story that we are part of, that we would remember with thanksgiving the, the, the sort of God that you are, your exploits, the things that you have done um, in history. Uh, the, and that would help form us and shape us and, and, and tell us what the future hope is. So Heavenly Father, by your Holy Spirit, I, I pray that you, you would um, help us today to, to grasp hold of you to see you to know you to be formed by you to be conformed into the image of christ in jesus name amen, amen. amen. so what day is it today remembrance sunday, remembrance sunday. anything else <laughs> well done top points okay because that's going to be important by the way um today Right, so um, I've just finished reading this book. Uh, this book is called Eichmann in Jerusalem, a report on the banality of evil. Uh, basically, uh, Adolf Eichmann was a, um, a German officer convicted of war crimes after World War II. He was uh, a brilliant administrator that enabled uh, Jews from all over Europe to be shipped to uh, extermination centres. And uh, the... Israelis uh, tracked him down in Argentina and they extradited him to Israel and they tried him in a, in a, um, in a court process that lasted ages uh, and they, they, they sentenced him to death. And, and the thing was, so the point made by the book is that Eichmann, Adolf Eichmann was just a normal person just doing his job. He was not a monster. And this is the terrifying thing that Something perpetrated by Joe Average, by somebody very normal, was so hideous and heinous. It's not that he was a psychopath or had any um, tendencies to be monstrous. The terrifying thing was that he was absolutely normal. <clears throat> How was he able to perpetrate these hideous crimes? It's because the Nazi state had reconfigured what reality was. They had been preaching a narrative for years which changed what everybody thought about what was just genuinely normal. And so when time came for World War II and the atrocities that got perpetrated against the Jewish people, it wasn't, I'm doing something wrong. It's, I am carrying out and I'm being faithful to law. This, this is exactly legal. If I was to not do this, it'd be illegal. The narrative in Germany had been completely changed by the state. The Nazis had constructed a dominant narrative such that good, normal people were so removed from reality that they could perpetrate heinous evil. They were so wrapped up in the Germanic myth 
of a Volk, a bit like folk, but with a v, Volk, which is their um, Teutonic race, that they could easily, without reservation, embrace that narrative of national and racial superiority. So it is not that everyone has an inner Eichmann. Um, you know, it's, the point isn't that we are all capable of evil, even though we are, but that is not the point. It was that given the right narrative and adhering unthinkingly to the pervasive cultural myth that even a normal person could perpetrate evil without even recognising it as evil. That's the point. But to help penetrate the narratives that we are all presented with, the Bible encourages us to remembrance, to a deep, deep memory. And when I say deep memory, I'm channeling my inner Walter Brugman there. And this, is, this remembrance, this deep memory, isn't about living in the past. It's not living in this kind of um, euphoric past where we look back and say, oh, the good old days. That's not what it is. It's living in a greater narrative, a narrative that is greater still than the social constructs we are in. It's living in the narrative of the one who is and was and is to come. And if you notice, one of the things I was really uh, noticing this morning in the worship songs was that it draws a lot on this, this past imagery of what God has already done to shape what is going to happen. So the, resur- the one who was resurrected is resurrecting me. It draws upon this greater narrative of something that God has done in the past is going to shape us moving forwards. Okay, that's a really key theme that I want to bring out today. So true remembrance, because it's Remembrance Sunday, true remembrance should not be hijacked by sentimentality or sloganeering. But it so often is. And that's the big problem. Remembrance should pierce the narrative that we are living in. It should open our eyes to see what is truly going on. But so often, remembrance, especially something as potent and as nationalistic as Remembrance Sunday, is co-opted. <clears throat> to remember is to re-member. It's to embody something again, to reincarnate it afresh. <clears throat> deep remembrance, deep memory, as the Bible would have it, would mean to be formed in a peculiar way as a result of what we are remembering. Ways that deeply connect us with creation and our neighbour. This is what the Bible would have us do when we talk about remembrance. And I'm going to draw on some um, Bible texts. That would be appropriate for Sunday at church, wouldn't it? And this connectedness with creation and each other, with neighbour, we call that compassion. Okay, so compassion literally means to suffer with. So we get it from the Latin, com, which means with, and pathos which is to suffer or to feel or to emote with someone. So we feel with other people. So, we, so remembrance is about being formed in a peculiar way. And it's about compassion, a connectedness. Remembrance, true remembrance, deep memory, is something that is compassionate and formative. And the pervasive cultural amnesia is disconnecting, it's uncompassionate, it's preoccupied with myths of superiority and a defensiveness about that superiority, an unneighbourly conduct. So I'm going to explain all of this. So this, this time of year, particularly like the last week or so, is typified by remembrance, right? So we've had bonfire night, Remembrance Sunday. What happened on Friday? What was Friday the remembrance of? 80 years ago something happened on Friday, November the 9th and 10th. And it's very related to this. 
Okay, it was called Kristallnacht. It was the night of the broken glass. It was a riot that was evoked throughout Germany against the Jews. Tens of thousands of Jewish shops and houses were destroyed and burnt. Hundreds of Jews were beaten to death in the streets. And that was not the start of, of um, Nazis against Germany, but it was the start of it getting really sharp. The persecution against the Jews, that's, that's the night when it became overt and public. It's the first time when there was a state-sponsored riot against a specific people group. In the past, there had been pogroms and riots, but that was just a groundswell of people rioting against others. But this time, it was, spon was state-sponsored. The actual government had inflicted this themselves. So 80 years ago, on November the 9th and 10th, in Germany, that was, the, that was the night of the broken glass, as they remember it. So we've got Bonfire Night, we've got Remembrance Sunday, we've got Crystal Act. We've also had um, Nick's 8th uh, anniversary of her 25th birthday. Um, <laughs> it was 10 years ago on uh, Thursday that we, had, uh, um, that we got engaged. So for this, this time of year, it's really ripe with remembrance. So let me illustrate these ideas of remembrance as formation and compassion. So, remembrance works counter to dominant narratives, to dominant national myths. So, for example, if I was to make a big deal out of Nick's birthday today on, on Facebook or something on social media, but then for the rest of the year, treated Nick like dirt, you know, pushed her aside, that is not a deep remembrance. That is not a memory. That is um, just not to remember, is it? Even though I make a big show and a deal about the remembrance of that day, but not living in a peculiar way shaped by that makes a mockery of, of that remembrance, doesn't it? It just means that that's a facade that I'm projecting. <coughs> now, so that's about the formational part. Now, you know... Um, I don't know if you get this at work or whatever, but you know, there's kind of these dominant narratives about marriage. So we have these phrases like the odd ball and chain, seven year itch, and this sort of thing, where it's kind of. Um, I mean, I, I actually work at home, so <laughs> I don't really have this water cooler talk at all, but um, it, it's that thing where, like, it's cool, isn't it? Like, you have to join in and talk about how limited you are by your marriage, by how um, constrained or by how boring life is or uh, by how much of a pain it is, right? Does that still happen? I see it on comedy shows on telly. <laughs> and so you could, like, go along with that, couldn't you? Yeah, it's, it's a real bind, you know, like, oh, I can't come out and do X, Y, Z because of, cause of being married. Well, you can subvert that narrative, can't you? You, can, you don't have to, like, blatantly come out and say, no, that's all lies. But you can live in such a way, daily, where it's like, actually, I really enjoy my marriage. Like, it's actually quite liberating. It's something that's been formational to me. It's changed me as a person for the better. And that subverts the dominant narrative. But the, the, the flow would be to be, oh, I want to be cool. I want to be in. So I'm going to go along. I'm going to nod along and say, yeah, I want to be part of that flow. But actually, by remembering by engaging, by being changed, by having that compassion, that connectedness, it can actually be a subversive element to, to the dominant narrative. So let's just, just uh, do a bit of a thought experiment then. Bonfire night. What's bonfire night remembering? 
Guy Fawkes? Are we celebrating Guy Fawkes on Bonfire Night? Are we cele- is that what Bonfire Night is? Is it a celebration of Guy Fawkes? It's just a mark of the occasion. It's, it's actually a celebration that the king survived. King James I. Bonfire Night is a celebration that King James I survived. But we, um, tongue-in-cheek, remember Guy Fawkes. Oh, he almost did it. <laughs> he almost got the whole parliament. <laughs> but the thing is, we forget... The, the, the thing that drove that, unless we watched the Gunpowder series on BBC last year, we forget that what drove that was the religious persecution in this country. The clamping down on a group of people and pushing them to the margins so much that they, would, they could be tortured and killed very easily. What would happen if in the social consciousness, in, in the narrative that we live within, what, what would happen if we actually truly remembered Bonfire Night, that it was all about having... A narrative that was so constructed that we could easily exclude people to the point where we could punish them and kill them. Do you think that some of the issues that we have now with Im- Im- um, immigration or refugees or marginal groups within society, do you think that they would be dominant themes? Or if we remembered Bonfire Night truly, do you think that that would be overturned? It would change things, wouldn't it? Okay, Chris Delnacht, not that any of you would have remembered it because you didn't know about it. But if, but if we remembered that, if we truly remembered that, the insidious and creeping fear of the other that's injected into society, the, the fear and terror of the stranger, of the unknown one, if we remembered that and remembered how the narrative was so constructed that, that these people were vilified so much that they could be beaten and killed with impunity, if we remembered that, how would that have changed how, how politics is done in this country? I'm not wanting to, to point the finger at how um, particularly Brexit in or out was constructed, but that sort of language of the fear of other or of how American politics is portrayed in the media, it just wouldn't happen, would it? Because we'd immediately draw the conclusion, that's exactly like this thing that happened, and look where that went. Instead, sometimes subversively it comes up in the news, some people dare to draw conclusions of a similarity between certain governments and, and fascist dictatorships and totalitarian regimes. But it's kind of on the side, isn't it? It's on the periphery. And the, the, the general pervasive understanding would be that, nah, it's unthinkable. That couldn't happen. But in 1938, what happened to the Jews between 1938 and 1944, that was unthinkable to everybody, and yet it happened. Remembrance Sunday, then. If we truly remembered, <coughs> and this day has been co-opted so much, all you have to do is look at social media, probably today, um, especially in the run-up to today, memes everywhere about what this day is and what it's supposed to be. Um, so, obviously today is about remembering our fallen in all of the wars since World War I, so this is 100 years since the armistice of World War I. But a lot of the memes about that, these things that have happened have been co-opted to say, well, because this happened, you should think this way, or you should vote this way. They've been politicised. Okay, it's so much so that even just the very nature of remembering, so wearing a poppy, and I've been back and forth on this over the last four or five years, you know, am I, am I supported war and violence or the military machine by, by wearing this? I don't think so anymore, but that's what I thought at the time. You know, it's been so politicised that even just trying to remember <coughs> becomes like a bit of like, oh, which side are you on? <coughs> you know, um, there have been things um, 
So like, we talk about freedom a lot. There's a lot of memes about the freedom. They fought and died for your freedom. Okay, but what we forget is that during World War I and World War II, a lot of the combatant countries were not free. One of the greatest dictatorships of the 20th century was one of the combatants. Russia, under Stalin, millions and millions and millions of people died under Stalin. They were not free. Their army fought in the war. The war was not fought for their freedom. The war was fought against a totalitarian regime that was, that was projecting their racial superiority on the rest of the world. And it's tragically ironic then, the way we as society tend to remember those who have served. <coughs> we sentimentalise it. It's overripe nationalism wrapped up in a thin veneer of honouring. It's not because we remember well, but we have a tendency to forget exactly what was going on. We struggle, we struggle, the modern world struggles in fact, with a deep amnesia and a willful forgetfulness. We have a, a faint idea of the glorious past and the glorious future, but actually what it is aimed at doing is keeping us in a status quo. The haves still have, the have-nots will still have not. We exclude those that we're fearful of and we're fearful of them because we're told to fear them. We haven't got to know them, we haven't spent time with them, and if we did, they would no longer be strangers to be feared. This amnesia means we deceive ourselves about a victorious and heroic past and condemns us. And like, we like to say this, don't we? If, if you um, fail to remember the past, you're condemned to make the same mistakes, or whatever that nice phrase was that I just butchered. Um, but that's not the point of remembrance. The remembrance punctures the machinations that work in society. So the things that evoked and elicited World War I wasn't that we were being victorious and, and heroic. It's that Germany was developing a navy, and we in Britain didn't want them to develop a navy. And then all sorts of other things exploded, and then we had World War I, which was the war to end all wars, but we forgot that it was the war to end all wars, and it led directly to World War II. <clears throat> we become subject to the national myths that get repeated tirelessly and endlessly to form us. All of our press, for example, I'm getting really political now, aren't I? Um, all of our press, we, we, um, I, I set out to find like a really independent press to read news. And the funny thing is, is like, <laughs> the funny thing is, is that you just can't find it. So I started using uh, a, a news site called um, The Conversation, which is written by um, largely like academia and their take on current events. But what you see, find is that the most, of, most of academia are kind of left-leaning, um, which is great because it kind of agrees with me because I'm sort of left-leaning. But the problem is, is I know it agrees with me. Yeah. And, and then, like, nothing is... Nothing worth reading, anyway, is so far to either extreme. It's all kind of in this centre ground. And no matter, like, it's a little bit of a pushback against this one, but still, you know, it's not a great deal of difference. You know, and we get formed by these things... And the problem is, is when we're formed by national myths, when push comes to shove, there'll always be someone that has to lose out. Because if, if our national myth has to prove dominance, then other national myths have to give way. Okay, I mean, we try and keep a tenuous peace, but we know that, you know, when push comes to shove, well, it's got to be Britain first, or it's got to be America first, or it's got to be, well, the EU is kind of... You know, the EU first, and then everybody's got to prove that their way is right. And so that's why we have all this conflict. However, as Christians, 
I feel like you subverted my message, love. <laughs> I'm trying to be really serious. <laughs> there you are with Bunny and Nunny, smiling at everyone. Um, yeah, however, we as Christians are no longer enslaved to these national myths, these dominant narratives in society, um, nor are we enslaved to the prevailing amnesia. We are not doomed to forget. Uh, we are not doomed to adhere to a history that's just rewritten as is needed by whatever is going on at the time. Uh, we call this the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age. And so often history is rewritten. So um, no doubt uh, in, in politicking, when they're promoting something, they'll draw upon narratives of the past to validate what they're saying. So again, Remembrance Sunday. Uh, let's validate um, leaving the EU because of World War II. And we see that a lot, a real confusion of what actually World War II was about and what we did. But somehow now that means that we shouldn't be part of the EU. Uh, I'm not, I'm not criticising leaving the EU or being in the EU, but that's clearly not what World War II was all about. Yeah. Instead, we are liberated and we are motivated not by the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, but we are motivated by the Holy Spirit. Um, a spirit that is humble not full of hubris, because the problem is, is when we buy into these national myths, these agendas, that's full of hubris. It's like, my way is right, and your way, unfortunately, or fortunately, is wrong. And therefore, I'm allowed to denigrate you with impunity. This is a spirit of deep memory, and it's characterised by this deep compassion and empathy for other people. So whereby a national myth says, at some point, my nation, or my race, or my ethnicity, or my gender is better than yours... Motivated by the Spirit, we can say there is no longer slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile. It is an empathy, it's a connectedness with humanity as a whole, not just my group. The deep memory of Yahweh is one that sides with those on the underside of power, the victims, the forgotten ones, the ones because history is always told by the victors. Churchill famously said, history will remember me well because I intend to write it. History forgets the victims. But the Bible itself is unique in the fact that it is the story of the losers. It's the story of a nation that is forever in exile, that is forever conquered, that forever has douches for kings. It is the story of a saviour that comes and is crucified by the government of the time. But he is the forgiven victim. It is the story of the victims and how they overcome. Amnesia is beset by this bizarre reductionism and polarisation. Um, we are the heirs of great goods. We are the heirs of great victories because we deserved it. Um, our cause is right and true. Our exceptionalism is what brings us this wealth and success. Uh, and your wrongness, your unrightness, is what means that we can conquer you, that we can dominate you. And that proves that we're right because you have lost. That's how history works, isn't it? We have a glorious conquering past and we have an abundant future. But actually, that's just an extension of the now. We're extending our now backwards and rewriting history and we're extending our now forwards and rewriting the future to keep the prevailing status quo. <coughs> there's no memories of the victims, there's no memories of our own mistakes, there's no memories of the character flaws of the ones who are our heroes. You ever notice how um, when we teach uh, the Old Testament, for example, we always think that um, you know, David and Solomon race. They're wonderful because they're in the Bible. They've got to be good. No, because if you go read the stories, 
they're not good and that's the point they're failed and flawed but God still was graceful towards them deep memory is not about being gloomy about failures in the past it's not about taking a record of wrongs done and it's not some perverse self-flagellation about sin and shame in our past it is remembering that we are not part of the the narrative we are not self-made we are not aloof it's about a deep compassion and a deep formation a recognition of inclusive oneness is part of God's good creation. Am I my brother's keeper? And the answer is an undoubted and resolute yes, you are your brother's keeper. <clears throat> We're all subject to the same privations and plentitude. We're all subject to the same failures and successes. Compassion comes from the humility of recognising our own weakness and frailty. <clears throat> and it comes from recognising the weakness and frailty in everybody else Um, there's a picture that I want to show you compassion comes from saying if it wasn't for grace and chance I could have been that person I don't know if many of you remember this picture This, this was a refugee coming across the water I think it was into Italy the man's name is Leif Majid and I remember seeing this picture and, it, and as the common narrative would say, these people are here to take our jobs but also sponge off our state. But I saw that and I thought that could be me with my daughters. You know, and, and, and out of that deep compassion. And it's not because I'm an exceptional human being. In fact, you know, I'll probably lean on the sociopathic end of the scale. But when I see that, it makes me hold my daughters at that bit tighter because I recognise... And it sounds twee, but there but for the grace of God go I. And that's where this compassion goes. Because the national myth, the prevailing myth is, no, I need to push him back and down so that I can be successful. Because I don't want him horning in on my patch of territory or coming into my... I don't know who he is. He could be a terrorist. He's from the Middle East. So, you know, what? He's got a pretty good chance of being a terrorist, right? But remembrance in God bursts through that myth. That is not... A terrorist from the Middle East here to take my job or, or sponge off our system. That is a man with kids who's just trying to do his best to survive. It shapes us because it shaped the heart that I have that could have been hardened against him. And it means that I'm formed in a certain way and I'm compassionate towards that. And if we pay attention, the mask of the prevailing myth slips and something punctures that facade. <clears throat> so remember it's Sunday. That's beautiful dancing. So it's 100 years since the armistice, concluding World War I. Um, And if we listen carefully to what came out of World War I, we can perceive the myth, the national myths of glorious battle uh, being torn. At World War I, Britain still had an empire, and it was called the Empire. The sun never set on the British Empire at the start of World War I. And it was glorious for you to serve that empire. <clears throat> There's a poem written by Wilfred Owen, and it's a tremendous poem, and we've probably all studied it in English at some point. And it's called Dolce et Decorum Est. And that was a quote from a Roman poet, <clears throat> and it literally means how sweet and honourable it is to die for one's country. 
And this was written in the Royal College where they used to train um, the army, basically. All of the officers, this was written on the wall as you come in. How glorious it is to die for one's country. Of course that's the message you want to get to your soldiers. It's glorious to die for one's country. And Wilfred Owen, um, who actually died just days before the armistice was signed, <clears throat> one of the most famous war poets, he wrote uh, probably one of the most famous poems of that generation as well. And it was called Dolce et Decorum Est, and it was a totally subversive poem to the national myth. Um, I was going to read it, probably, but I probably won't do it justice. So. <laughs> is not glorious death in battle very rarely lives up to the myth and Owen Wilfred Owen a man who was blown up in the war he, he was uh, brought back home to be nursed back to health he had shell shock listening to his poetry it tears the veil the old lie that it is glorious to die in battle. The old lie of the national myth that you are somehow superior and better and it's wonderful for you to be part of that. Owen tears that apart. Why? Because of compassion. Because he's seen other people die. And he's seen that it is not glorious the way they died. It's not wonderful. It's not heroic. Yes, the giving of their lives for something bigger than themselves is heroic and, and let us not be fuzzy about that. But death itself in that context is not. And because of his deep compassion for his fellow human beings, he was able to say this is not glorious. This is not right. That we 
hype these kids up who are looking for some sort of glory in battle, for them to die choking to death on chlorine gas. The totalised myth of us versus them is never glorious. It is never wonderful as the myth suggests that you are better than everybody else, so you deserve it. You can push them down because you deserve it. You are self-made. You are entitled to these things. That is never glorious. The most powerful subversion of the prevailing myth across all societies, each nation has their own, but the one thing that punctures them all is the deep memory of the Bible throughout the Old Testament, especially in the books of the law, ironically. There's this repeated refrain of, Remember. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. Remember how I, Yahweh, delivered you. Why is there a call puncturing all the time through the Old Testament? The word remember is used 271 times through the Old Testament. Why is it there? Because we forget. Because we so easily get carried away with what we're being told. You know in the law there's some really random things. Don't be gathering horses and chariots. Don't get chariots from Egypt. These are in the law. What does Solomon do? He accumulates chariots and horses. What does that make Solomon look exactly like? Egypt. He is forgotten. And so instead of building God's kingdom, Israel, he's rebuilt Egypt in a different place because he forgot. Why are we told continuously to remember? Because we forget. In the law it says, write it down, wear it, pin it to your doorpost, tell it to your children, make symbols, have traditions, remember, remember, remember. Have set times in the year to remember, set things. Because deep memory, this remembrance of your deliverance, this remembrance that you were the ones on the underside of power, you were the victims, will help you not make anybody else that way. You will have a deep compassion. Remember. Because it will shape you. It will shape you in special ways, in peculiar ways. It shapes you in ways that make you look exactly like me, Yahweh. And it will always subvert the countervailing myths of Babylon, of Egypt, of Rome. It will always work against that because they're always trying to subject people and lift themselves up. Whereas you will always be the one subjected. If you forget, you will become so immersed in the narratives that you will look exactly like them. If you want to turn with me to Deuteronomy 24. I'm nearly finished now, by the way, so. Should we dance? So from verse 10. When you make your neighbour alone of any kind, you shall not go into the house and take the pledge. You shall wait outside while the person to whom you are making the loan brings it out to you. So remember Jesus talking about do not take the cloak Okay, maybe you will. If the person is poor, you shall not sleep in the garment given. You shall not keep the garment given to you as pledge. You should give the pledge back by sunset, so that your neighbour may sleep in the cloak and bless you. It will be to your credit before the Lord your God. You shall not withhold the wages of the poor and needy labourers, whether other Israelites or the foreigners who reside in your land and in one of your towns. You should pay them their wages daily and before sunset, because they are poor and their livelihood depends on them. Otherwise, they might cry out to the Lord against you, and you will incur guilt. Parents shall not be put to death for the sins of their children, nor children be put to death for their parents. Only for their own crimes may persons be put to death. You shall not deprive a resident stranger or orphan of justice. You shall not take a widow's garment as a pledge. Remember 
because you were in that position. You were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God has redeemed you. Therefore, I command you to do this. If we had a deep remembrance of society, the greater narrative, God's narrative, do you think that this country would look like it does now? Do you think that we would have policies and institutions in place the way they are now if we had a truly deep remembrance? We would not. Yahweh summons us to remember, and that remembering evokes compassion and forms us as humans in very specific and peculiar ways. And I would suggest that the way is Jesus Christ, who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The way that God is calling us to remember is to be formed in a very specific way. Remember when you were exploited. Remember when you were vulnerable to those who wielded power over you. Remember when you were the victim, when you were the one that was marginalised, when you were the weak one. Then act in ways consistent with that recognition and the great mercy that has delivered you. There's a wonderful meme, I think Susie shares it kind of quite regularly, about like, it's about being the person that you wish you had when you were younger. This memory is part of our narrative. Do we remember what it was like to be slaves in Egypt? Has anybody ever been a slave in Egypt? No, but it's part of our greater narrative. It's part of the Jesus narrative which we are in. We are liberated from the national myths of being English or British, whichever one floats your boat. We don't have to be national. We don't have to be of any group other than in Christ. We are in Christ. We are hidden in Christ. Wilfred Owen's poem concludes with the idea that we could not go on repeating the hollow myths of the glory of dying in battle if we'd seen, if we could place our shoes if we could place ourselves in the shoes, not just place our shoes, because that would be pointless. If we could place ourselves in the shoes of those who had witnessed death in battle, we would not keep saying how great and glorious it is to die in battle if we had actually been in the position to see that happen. The myth is subverted by the compassion that comes from witnessing reality. When society beckons us to climb the ladder, to ensure our own survival at the cost of others, to endorse our own prosperity that inflicts poverty on others, that stakes our safety as a reason to exclude others from safety, then we are called to remember. Remember the God of infinite compassion. The God who pours out his blood and his life, not for his own, not just for his fellow countrymen or co-religionists or supporters of his agenda. No, we remember with a deep memory the God who calls us to live in a way not co-opted by politics, by fear, by wealth, by power or influence. But we live in a deep remembrance of the Christ who forms us, the God on the cross who holds his arms open wide for his betrayers. Because his disciples were not his followers at that point, they were his betrayers. And he holds his arms wide on the cross for his enemies, the ones that pinned him there, the ones that beat him and scourged him and convicted him, for all of his fellow countrymen that cried out, his blood be on my head. On the cross, we remember Jesus saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. No one was on Jesus' side. No one was for him. And he said, forgive them all. That is who we remember. That's what our memory is shaped by. So I'm bringing this to communion now because this is the other place where Jesus really talks about remembrance. I'm trying to work up some pathos here. <laughs> work with me. <clears throat> uh, 1 Corinthians 11. There's this bit where Paul uh, rails against the Corinthian church about communion. Uh, turn there with me and then I'll just give uh, a few comments and then we'll move on to it. So, uh, 1 Corinthians 11 verse 19. 
Actually, go from verse 20. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead for your own private suppers. Just for context, they are actually supposedly having the Lord's Supper. They are supposedly trying to have communion. But Paul's telling them, nope, that's not what you're doing. You're having you, some of you go ahead and have your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another person gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed to you. The Lord Jesus Christ, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the, the cup, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this, and whenever you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So that whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many, of you, many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. Which is a euphemism for dying. <clears throat> but if we were more discerning with regards to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not finally be condemned in the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you shall all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home, and then when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give you further directions. Paul is ticked. So what was happening in the Corinthians? Like, I hate the way that we've used these verses to say... Um, feel really guilty before having communion exclude yourself if you feel bad about something rubbish all rubbish what was going on in the Corinthian church is that you had the wealthy people in the church and you had the poor people in the church because that's what happened in churches you had everybody from the limits of society coming into this one place and what they were doing is the wealthy said well we're wealthy so we're entitled to have better food and yet you guys may be poor but we ain't sharing our food with you and so Paul says, that is rubbish. That is not what communion is all about. Communion is inclusive. It's supposed to be everybody. So if you are excluding people, if you're using this as an occasion to exclude people, you are doing it wrong and that condemns you. The fact that you exclude people is wrong. The communion table is for everybody because it remembers Christ's body and blood poured out for everybody. That's why it talks about discern the body of Christ because it is made up of all of you. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. You're not entitled to more if you're rich because that imports the cultural narrative. Well, I'm wealthy, so that means I'm better than somebody who is poor because if I wasn't a better person, then I wouldn't be wealthy because that's how the gods bless us, right? I'm blessed if I'm good and I'm cursed if I'm bad. But that is not the God of grace. And so Paul is saying there is no space for that in the church. You are worshipping other gods and that is to your condemnation. When we come to the table, it is for everybody. If you are hungry, do that someplace else. This is to be partaken of as a body. <clears throat> so as we remember... We are formed in peculiar ways and we are formed by compassion, which is a deep connectedness to everybody else. Why? Because Jesus is the one who died for all. Jesus is the one that says God's reign falls on the wicked and the righteous at the same time. God's love is indiscriminate. 
everybody can come to the table freely and drink. It says that in Isaiah. Okay, so as we plunge into this deep remembrance, let this form us. Let this punctuate the myths in society that say some people are better than others. Um, you are valid, you know, if you're wealthy, that's validated the rightness of your cause or whatever that is. And as we partake of this, let us know that our lives are hidden in Christ. That we are as weak and as frail as the next person. But that we are also overcomers in Christ. That we are forgiven and that Jesus has included us. So please, free, free to come and partake. This is a vegan organic red wine. Which I thought was kind of a win. <laughs> I mean, if it tastes like rubbish. You know. But you're still included, vegans and organic people. <laughs> and this is just squash, very well. I'm going to go get the kids. But um, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, sir. Thanks, sir.